when Jesus had finished saying all these things, so just, just look back at what those things were, and it's that wonderful piece where it says, um, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in a prison did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to one of these, least of these, you did it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We had that last week. And when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest. His name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near, I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did it, Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus... (coughs) was again reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, (coughs) I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd never been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup gave thanks and offered to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, 
I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who left the glory of heaven and came down to live in our world. And Lord, thank you for his ministry among the disciples uh, and Lord, particularly for these uh, words that we read from the last days of his life. And Lord, we ask that as we study them this morning, as we think about uh, the Last Supper and uh, Jesus explaining the purpose for his death, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive uh, him as our uh, Messiah. Lord, we ask that you would... uh, Give us the strength that we need uh, and the clarity through your Holy Spirit, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Why uh, did Jesus die? Uh, It's a straightforward question, I suppose. Uh, And, you know, many of us would perhaps be willing to uh, offer a pretty good guess of what the answer to that is. But then maybe again there are some of us who don't quite understand the purpose of Jesus' death as well. Or maybe there are people that we know who we're struggling to communicate to what the purpose of Jesus' death is. But why Jesus died is a surprisingly important question. In every gospel, in all four of the gospels, the last few days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion take up uh, the largest part of uh, of the gospel. The gospel writers want us to know that one of the most important things, perhaps the most important thing that Jesus did was that he died and that he rose again to life. And yet while so far in Matthew uh, Jesus has forecast that he die and he's kind of uh, explained to, uh, to some degree the purpose of his death in bits and pieces, it's in these last few days before his crucifixion that he really gets to it and he really begins to work hard at explaining clearly the purpose of his death. And no place, I think, does he do that more clearly than in the Last Supper. Uh, In this last meal with his disciples uh, on the night before uh, he was crucified, uh, Jesus explains why he died. In that last meal, a meal that we continue to celebrate over and over in the Lord's Supper, Jesus explains the purpose of his death. The scene is set uh, at the beginning of chapter 26 when Jesus says in verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. (laughs) At this point, you're thinking the disciples probably actually don't know that, even though Jesus has said it lots of times. uh, They're probably still caught by surprise that Jesus is going to be handed over to be crucified. Uh, It's roughly Tuesday evening two days before the Passover and three days before the crucifixion. And what follows in the first half of the chapter that uh, Chris read for us is uh, that the conspiracy of the priests and the elders, the plan of Judas to betray Jesus uh, and the woman who anoints Jesus with oil. It's all hurrying towards Jesus' impending death. But what sets the context for all of this is the Passover and Jesus' comment that the Passover is almost upon them. The preparations for the Passover begin in uh, verse 17 of chapter 26. Uh, Matthew writes, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, 
Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. I discovered two things, just by way of irrelevant aside, I discovered two interesting things this week. The first was that Jesus had, uh, Judas had agreed to betray Jesus before the Last Supper. I never, somehow that had always passed me by. So that means that Judas was sitting there the whole time. He'd, he'd gone out, he'd made his deal, he'd, he'd uh, made his deal with the priests, and he's sitting there the whole time at the Last Supper waiting to betray Jesus. And Jesus is sitting there the whole time going, I, <laughs> I know what's happened, I know you've agreed to betray me, b- betray me but uh, you can imagine the tension in the room as they're sitting there eating this meal. The second uh, interesting thing which I discovered this week is that in verse 23, when Jesus says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me, I'd always had this vision, I don't know if it's only me, I'd always had this vision that everyone would be sitting there at the table trying not to put their hand in the bowl. You know, sort of like, (laughs) it's like, oh, and Judas is there kind of going, no, I won't put my hand in the bowl. And uh, at the same time as Jesus but that's not what's going on. Uh, what's going on, Jesus is not saying the person who puts, you know, it's like, oops, we were in the bowl at the same time. It's, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the person who's going to betray him is someone who's shared a meal with him. That's all he's saying. The person who's dipped their hand in the bowl the same, with, along with me. The person who's shared my meal, who's eaten with me, a, a brother of mine, a friend, is going to betray me. Anyway, that's by the by. The point is they're here celebrating the Passover when in verse 26 Jesus interrupts the normal uh, Passover meal and begins to reshape it, the meaning of the Passover, and to reinterpret the Passover, if you like, in terms of his impending death. And he does that with that extraordinary statement in, in verse 26 where he says... This is my body. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body. This bread represents Jesus' body. And so too Jesus takes the the wine and the cup, and he says that this wine is his blood. It represents his blood. And taken together, what Jesus is doing is saying to his disciples, in a shocking way, I think, it must have been so confronting for them when Jesus said it the first time, he's saying that His impending death, his impending sacrifice is like the Passover sacrifice in the Old Testament. Uh, If you don't know, the Passover was a celebration, a reminder of Israel's last night in Egypt. And during the 10th plague, you might remember God brought the 10 plagues against Egypt. And during the 10th plague, God struck down the firstborn son, or actually the firstborn of every living animal, uh, every living creature in the land of Egypt. Uh, And the only way to escape that judgment, being, that firstborn being struck down, was to kill lamb and to paint that blood on the doorframe of the house. And the people who'd done that were spared that judgment of God. And every year the, the Israelites would celebrate the Passover by eating a meal, by roasting a lamb, and by uh, remembering that God passed over them in mercy because of the blood of that sacrifice being spread on the doorframe of the house. 
Jesus is interpreting his death in the light of the Passover and he's saying that through his sacrifice, through his death on the cross, we escape the wrath of God. God's wrath passes over us because God's wrath was spent on Jesus. God is so offended by our sin that he demands our death. But Jesus died in our place so that we might be forgiven. Instead of striking us down, God struck Christ down. Jesus was our substitute. Uh, whenever I play sport, uh, I've played, I, I don't know, I've played so many, I'm not good at any sports, but I've played lots of different sports in my life, touch football, soccer, I'm always the worst person and I'm always the substitute, right? But nobody ever wants to be the substitute. Nobody ever wants to be subbed off. I remember the, I remember the, oh, the dramas, you know, in, uh, in soccer, you know, when somebody wanted to be, had to be subbed off. You're like, come on, come on, come on. And no one wants to come off. We spend our lives not wanting to be substituted off. And yet maybe... This is the only time in our lives when substitution is the greatest gift that anyone could ever give. Jesus substituted himself into our place so that he died instead of us. Jesus took the wrath of God, the terrors of hell, separation from God, the just, righteous punishment of God. He took on all our sins, all our sins against God, all our sins against each other, all our sins against God's world. He took that all on and died in our place. Why did Jesus die? Jesus says to his disciples on that first, last supper, Jesus died so that in him the wrath of God might pass over us and be spent on him. So that's the first way that Jesus explains his death. Uh, But Jesus not only anchors his death in the Passover, that Old Testament uh, event, he also uses uses language that ties his death back to another uh, important Old Testament event. In verse 27, when he takes the cup, he says, uh, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There are only uh, two places in the Old Testament where the phrase blood of the covenant is used and the most significant is in Exodus 24 and it's worth turning back to Exodus 24, I think, to see what Jesus is doing. The disciples would have been so familiar with this passage uh, so that when Jesus said these words, it would have conjured up for them this imagery and this event. So Exodus 24 uh, from verse 1. So, back in, so uh, Israel's coming out of Egypt. Uh, God's given them in chapter 20 the Ten Commandments. He's establishing uh, a covenant with them. And uh, Exodus 24, verse 1, then uh, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. 
He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. So notice the similarities. First of all, the words, the blood of the covenant. Uh, Second of all, there is a covenant. Uh, There's the presence of God. And there are people eating and drinking with God. Exodus uh, 24 was the beginning of a new relationship between God and his people. They'd been rescued uh, from Egypt and now God was beginning something new and that relationship was begun with blood. That is, it was begun with forgiveness. Uh, If someone has hurt you or offended you or wronged you, you cannot have a meaningful relationship with them unless you forgive them first, unless you deal with the past. If someone cheats you in business... uh, You cannot deal with them in a business relationship even unless you can first forgive or deal with what's happened in the past. Uh, One of my my best friends uh, is a person who at one point in my life I could not stand to be in the same room as them virtually. And and likewise, he would say the same thing about me. He'd probably probably be more strident. (laughs) But... It was a it was a it was a, a a fractious relationship, and yet now we're the best of friends, extraordinary friends, and that's only because we're able to deal with the past and to forgive the past. Desmond Tutu, in his book, uh, titled a book, uh, "No Future Without Forgiveness." It's true in human relationships. How much more true is that in our relationship with God? How do you begin again with God? You can't make God forgive you because it's God's choice to forgive or not to forgive. What's the worst uh, sin, I wonder, that you've ever committed? Well, God says that he can forgive that and that you can start again with God. Or what... What would it be like if you added up all the sins in your life, all the tiny little sins, the smallest ones? Forget the big ones, just put those aside for the moment. But imagine that you, that you raked up all the tiny little sins, even just the times when you've basically said to God, get stuffed, I don't want to have anything to do with you. What if you added all those up and they were like stones and you piled them up one on top of the other? It'd be, probably be higher than Mount Everest, I suspect. But God says that he can... Bury those things in the depths of the sea and that you can start again with him. Jesus is saying that his death enables us to start again with God from scratch. Just like in Exodus 24 when the blood of the sacrifice enabled the people to start afresh with God. By trusting in Jesus 
uh, and trusting in his death, God offers, offers us the opportunity to begin again. Just like uh, with the Passover, the blood of uh, a substitute was said so that people might escape uh, the, the, wrath, the righteous wrath of God. But not only that, uh, in the Old Testament, every year on the Day of Atonement, uh, the relationship had to be b- begun again. So every year there was, there was Exodus 24, but then every year there was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was basically a way of saying, yep, well, we've mucked, we've mucked this new relationship up and let's, let's kind of kickstart it again. Every year they had to restart the new relationship. Sin had broken the relationship with God and they needed to start it all over again. But Jesus is starting through his death, has started a new relationship with God that doesn't need to be kick-started every year. We don't need a new Jesus or a new crucifixion every time that we sin because our sin can't destroy what the cross of Christ has achieved. Jesus' death is more powerful than our sin. So often I find uh, that people feel the need for a new crucifixion every time they fall into sin. Uh, And the crucifixion that they normally look for is their own. So they're caught in a sin and they and they say, No, I'm never gonna do I'm not gonna do this again. And then they you know, I'm I'm not gonna be selfish, I'm not gonna get angry with my husband, or I'm not gonna get angry with my wife or with that person. Uh, I'm never gonna do it. And then it happens, and then they think, Well, God can't forgive me. Or he, he'll only forgive me if actually I make myself feel as miserable as I can. If only if I kind of crucify myself, will God begin to accept me again. And they feel miserable and they make everybody else feel miserable. And actually it robs them of any joy of the gospel. Jesus says it's his death which makes us forgivable. Not our misery and not our self-flagellation, not our kind of whipping ourselves and making ourselves feel miserable. Only Jesus' death can bring forgiveness and his death begins a new relationship with God that doesn't need to be restarted all the time. It's begun again once for all time. Why did Jesus die? He died so that in him the wrath of God might pass over us. And Jesus died so that in him we might have a new start with God. Last of all, Jesus explains uh, his death as being the beginning of a new covenant. Uh, a covenant is a, is a promise bound by an oath. Uh, actually, normally it's bound by an oath of self-imprecation. That's not a... <laughs> I don't usually use that word in public. But it basically... Basically, it's an oath where you say, if I don't do this, I'm going to kill myself. That's, it's, a real, it's a really serious oath. Uh, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's beginning a, 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 a promise so sure that we cannot doubt it. You might have noticed uh, that in Exodus 24, the covenant, what's often called the law covenant, that's the Ten Commandments and all those things, that covenant was only formed once the people had said we will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. So God was making them with them a covenant based on their obedience and their determination to obey what God had said. But that was a promise that they couldn't keep. Uh, it was not in their power or our power to obey everything that God has commanded us. 
What we need then is not just a fresh start, but we also need to be transformed, to be renewed, to be made new people. And in Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament, God promised to do that as well. So uh, it's worth turning to Jeremiah 31. Again, to see the background of what Jesus was saying here uh, in the Last Supper. So Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will, be not, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by their hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is really cheesy, and I don't know if I can say it with a straight face. (laughs) But, But you probably won't forget it, hopefully. God promises not only a new start, but a new heart. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? Not just a new start, but a new heart. God promises to do what the law couldn't do. Make us love God with all our heart and follow God and serve God and obey God. The law could never do that. All it could say is do this and make the people feel bad because they couldn't do it. But God says, a time is coming when I'll do that. I'll do that for you. I'll do that in you. And Jesus is saying that his death is the beginning of that new promise. Jesus' death brings us into that new promise in which God swears to make us new people. New people who love God and who love to do the will of God. Now you might look at your life and think to yourself, but I still sin. You know, I've trusted in Christ and yet there still seems to be sin in my life. What's going on? But it's so important, I think, to realise that what Jesus is talking about is a promise, a covenant, a promise sealed with blood. It's not a promise if you have the reality. If someone says to you, I promise I'll buy you a car and they buy you the car, then the kind of the promise is over, right? It's done. They've said what they'll do. They've done what they said they'll do, sorry. But by the same token, God has promised to write the law in our hearts and we don't have that reality yet. But what God has promised, he will do. And what God has promised, he's already begun to do. So salvation through Christ is less like the promise of buying a new car and more like the promise to build someone a house. God's begun the building, but it hasn't finished yet. And we don't need to worry that God will get halfway through and run out of money or get halfway through and think, no, you know, when I started, I liked that guy, but, you know, not anymore. What God promises to do, he starts and he finishes 
sealed in the blood of Christ. There's no doubt that God will make it happen. And so genuine Christians then will look at their lives and while their faith in Christ won't have made them perfect, it won't have left them the same either. You might still be drawn to love the world, but less so than before. I was talking to someone, a dear Christian, the other day and they said to me, they said, I turn on the TV now and I, there's nothing there. I used, to, I, I used to watch it all the time. And now I just turn on and go, no. Just don't, I, just, I don't care for it anymore. You might still struggle to love some people. And yet there are people who you used to find so hard to love that you love now so much more than you did before. They can wrong you and you don't even care. You might still struggle to pray. But now you pray like you've never prayed before. Prayer is your lifeline to God. When you pray, it's not because you love prayer, but because you love God. And you know that you need God so much. God is all you've got. Sin still besets even the best Christians, but true Christians are people whose lives have begun to change because of the powerful death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love those words of John Newton, uh, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, who said, Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what Jesus' death achieves. We're part of a promise of God to remake us in the image of Christ. And what God has begun, he will finish. It's extraordinary to think that Jesus says, I will not drink this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom with you. It's extraordinary to think that Jesus, that when that happens, when he drinks that fruit of the vine again, we'll all be perfect in the image of Christ. We might, we might celebrate our little Lord's suppers here every month, but we're all still imperfect people. But on that day when we join with Christ, it won't be like that anymore because the promise of God, the new covenant sealed in the blood of Christ will have reached its final fulfilment. What does the death of Jesus achieve for those who trust in Jesus? It enables us to escape from the coming judgment and the wrath of God It gives us a fresh start to begin again with God, a new relationship. And it seals to us the promise of the new covenant that not only will God forgive us, but he'll make us love him with all our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for the great and wonderful news of the gospel. That in the death of Christ, 
your wrath has passed over us and been laid on him. And thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel that through the death of Christ, our relationship with you is no longer marred by our past or even by our present, but is new and fresh, free from sin, free from enmity. And Lord, though we still look at our lives and we see the sin which still corrupts us, Lord, we know that in Christ Jesus, one day that will all be gone. Lord, we ask that you would enable each one of us to flee to Jesus and to put our hope in him and to believe him when he explains his death to us and to cling on to him for dear life. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.